when my students are working out these types of problems to really pay attention to the different methods that are out there and focus on how I can sequence that so that every student in the class can understand it from whatever level they're at. You're listening to Sam Brotherton, a teacher from St. Louis, Missouri. Sam's been teaching for five years. We chat with Sam on this Math Mentoring Moment episode of the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. Sam's main reason for contacting us is that he's struggling with the idea of where assessments fit in his routines. Sam's been teaching with three ACT Math lessons, Desmos activities, and a variety of other great resources he's gathered from the math community. But he's noticing much like we did early on, that when it comes to standardized tests or those word problems from the textbook, his students aren't performing any better. Listen in as we chat with Sam about these assessment struggles and how the conversation pivots to talk about how to make effective use of the five practices for orchestrating productive mathematical discussions and how purposeful practice fits into our lessons. This is another Math Mentoring Moment. Hit it. Welcome to the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. We are two math teachers who, together with you, the community of educators worldwide who want to build and deliver math lessons that spark engagement, fuel learning, and ignite teacher action. Welcome to episode number 13, where assessment and practice fit in curiosity-sparked lessons, a math mentoring moment with Sam Brotherton. Before we get to our interview with Sam, we want to remind you that you too can join us for a math mentoring moment on this podcast. In these episodes, we talk with teachers about real issues that arise in the classroom, and together we work through possible solutions. We know that our listeners, math educators like you, will get a lot of value by listening in on this conversation. If you have a struggle or issue and want to chat with us about it, head over to makemathmoments.com forward slash mentor and fill out the form. We won't be able to talk to everyone who fills out the form. There have been a ton so far, but we still make every effort to hear a variety of voices and classroom issues. Again, head over to makemathmoments.com forward slash mentor to apply. Before we get to the math mentoring moment, one of our favorite books is How We Learn, The Surprising Truth About When, Where, and Why It Happens by Benedict Carey. And believe it or not, both of us actually listen to this book in audio format while driving, running, or relaxing. Now you too can get it for free because Ammon's Audible platform is offering two free books by going to makemathmoments.com forward slash free book. That's makemathmoments.com forward slash free book. If you like podcasts, then two free audiobooks with Audible is the way to go. Awesome stuff, John. Let's get into the mentoring moment with Sam. Welcome to the podcast, Sam. Hey. Sam, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? What's your teaching story so far? Where do you live? All that kind of stuff. Fill us in on some details. What's your favorite color? (laughs) (laughs) 
You know, I don't really have a favorite color. I always tell my students that I like bright colors because you get that question every year as a teacher. Yeah, for sure. So I'm from St. Louis. I've come from a family of teachers. Ever since I was little, I've always just loved math. Uh, You know how sometimes when your young kids are kind of out of control or they won't sit still, so you put them on the iPod or something like that. Back when I was younger, my parents would give me a pencil and a sheet of paper like during church, and I would just sit there and work out math problems. So I think it's kind of always been in my blood, if that makes sense. So I'm in my fifth year now. This is my second year in the Melville School District at Oakville Middle School. I teach sixth grade math, and I absolutely love it. I can't get enough of it. Awesome. Awesome stuff. Cool. And is your schedule like an all math schedule? Like, so you've got a bunch of different groups of grade sixes coming through? I am all math this year. Sometimes I'll get like one social studies section, but this year I have six sections of math, two accelerated classes, and then just four standard sixth grade classes. Very cool. So we were going to ask you why you wanted to become a math teacher, but it sounds like uh, you've sort of hit on that. First of all, family of teachers, were your parents both teachers as well or math teachers, I should say? No, they're really not. uh, Well, I don't like to use the term math people, but they wouldn't call themselves math people. You know, no, they both taught elementary. And then my dad moved on to administration. He just retired as a superintendent last year. And my mom is director of outreach at a school in the St. Louis area. You know, something that I find really interesting is that they might not have maybe considered themselves to be so math centric, if maybe that's the the (laughs) term, but they managed to raise their son to sort of find a love of math. And that's something that I would definitely kind of tip my hat to, uh, because oftentimes if a parent dislikes math, they tend to sort of rub off on the children, not because it's genetic by any means, but just because because of their attitude towards it. So clearly they managed to sort of refrain from spreading that math phobia your way, which is really nice. Definitely. And I appreciate them for that. (laughs) So tell us a little bit more about your teaching story. You know, how have the first five years of teaching gone for you? Like maybe some successes, uh, maybe some challenges. So I think I have to kind of jump back to when I was an undergraduate at the University of Missouri. So I was sitting in one of my education classes and our teacher showed us a video of some guy pouring water into an octagon tank. And so I think you guys probably know who I'm referring to with that Dan Meyer task. And so I watched that video and I'm like, this is cool. You know, I always understood formulas and those kind of things. But after watching that video, I'm like, this is cool. This is how I want to teach. Like, I don't know what this is or how to do it. So I think my first two to three years, I really kind of struggled with how do you do three act tasks and how do you do problem based learning? And so I tried a bunch of stuff, you know, hoping that things would stick kind of like what you guys talk about in your first few episodes. So it's kind of nice that a lot of you guys out there kind of paved the way for people like me. But now I'm kind of at the point where I'm facing some new challenges and some new successes as I start to kind of grow as a teacher. One thing that's been awesome is just watching how excited kids get with different types of problems. So one problem that I kind of refer back to that's a big success for me is at my old school, the kids really like to eat the uh, fruities. You know what those are? Fruities? No. They're like the flavored Tootsie Rolls, right? Oh, okay. No, I don't think uh, we don't get those here in Canada. Yeah, yeah. I I had something different in mind. (laughs) I don't know how common they are here either. But anyway, the kids really liked them. So there was one kid who was selling them. And obviously, you're not supposed to. So the principal confiscated them. I was like, hey, can I have those? I'm going to make a math lesson out of them. (laughs) (laughs) So kind of the... If you think of, I think it's Dan Meyer's lesson with the uh, meatballs and the spaghetti sauce. Mm -hmm, That's his. 
great task. Uh, yeah. So I kind of took that idea, but I took the fruities and I recorded myself rolling them up into a ball. So they start off as cylinders and then had myself recorded rolling it up into a sphere and fast forward it and kind of made a three act task out of that. And that was kind of like a moment where I was like, you know, this is kind of clicking for me. I've like taken a task and I've made a connection that my kids can relate to and they're excited about so they can figure out the volume of one of these fruities and then use it to make an estimation on the volume of the sphere and all that kind of stuff. So nice. Now, nice. I'm wondering if we could go back for a second. I'm curious about this fruities task as well, but I want to go back and I, I feel like maybe I might have jumped the gun a little bit on asking about a challenge. And I'm wondering, it sounds like you bumped into Dan Myers. It sounds like probably his TED Talk where he shows the octagon-based fish tank or cooler or whatever it is that he's doing with water. And I'm wondering before you hit that point, because I remember that very vividly when I ran into that TED talk and then had an opportunity to see Dan speak, you know, my mind was blown. Like, what did math class look like for you? So we always like to ask, what do you remember from math class as a student or maybe even as a teacher prior to seeing Dan's TED talk? So there's a lot of traditional math for me. I kind of liked it, you know, because I was just kind of math focused. So like, when I'm sitting there working out a formula on paper, I have a tough word problem. Like that got my brain going. But uh, there were a few instances that I can remember that stick out that were different than just your traditional sense. My high school calculus teacher, Mr. White, he did a lesson with us one time where we had to bring in a random shaped item. And then we used Play-Doh to kind of show how you can integrate, take the integral of the item. Obviously, I don't remember the math side of that perfectly. But I remember I was like, okay, so this is kind of engaging. This is cool. So there were some moments where math looked like it could be different than your traditional paper pencil, but those were your outliers, right? So most of the time it's word problems, calculations, those kind of things. And you know what? I think John and I both relate when it comes to we typically didn't struggle with doing the procedural math like pen to paper, let's do the formula, let's find some answers. I don't know if I fully understood it, but I knew how to manipulate algebra. And luckily, I had that ability to recognize patterns and sort of take them. And that was helpful, but I definitely was missing some other pieces. And it sounds like this calculus teacher kind of created a math moment that mattered for you. And that might have been sort of like that hinge point or that stick point for you to connect it to the math. And obviously, it's likely been a while since you've done some calculus. And that would probably explain <laughs> why maybe the math hasn't stuck for you right now. But it's interesting that you do remember that actual experience. So that's really cool to hear. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, there's probably some high school calculus teachers listening that want to give me a tutoring session. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, you talked about hearing Dan and implementing your own three-act task, which sounds amazing. And that sounds like it's a great classroom action. We're wondering, what's on your mind lately? Like, what struggles have you and challenges have you had implementing those? What do you want to chat with us about today? I mean, I got a whole list for you guys. So as long as I can keep you here, I'll keep firing things at you. But I want to just start off by saying I have an awesome group of kids. They stay with me through all this stuff that I throw at them. It makes a lot of these challenges a lot easier. But one of the biggest things I'm struggling with right now is assessments. So my district is moving towards standards-based grading. I've been kind of playing around with it in my classroom. And what I'm starting to find is that we'll do these three-act tasks and we'll have some great classroom discussions and we'll be using manipulatives and using expo markers to show different types of mathematical modeling and everything. I'm looking at all this. And I'm like, this is great. You know, I'm patting myself on the back and everything. 
And then it comes to assessments, state testing or just summative assessments, word problems. And the kids are having a lot of trouble bridging that gap of, you know, what I would call authentic math, the things that are happening in class. And not that it's not authentic, but, you know, your traditional word problems, that's it's still a part of what we do every day as math teachers and math learners. Right. So if I could repeat back, you're saying like you're implementing the structure of three-act math tasks and you're getting a lot of engagement in your students, a lot of good discussions coming out of this, but when it's time to turn to say textbook problems or those kind of standard problems we may have started with in a traditional method, the kids are kind of flopping on those. They're having a hard time showing that understanding that they've already showed in the classroom lesson during that task time. Does that kind of summarize a little bit of that struggle that you're having? Yes. So I could give you an example if that would kind of help us. So sixth grade dividing fractions is a big one. So when I introduced that with the kids, um, who started? I think it was a Max Ray problem. Okay. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm aware of it. We'll try to put it in the show notes. Seven cups of dog food. Your dog eats two thirds of a cup per meal or something like that. How many meals can you feed the dog? Right. So building a real world example where you might think about dividing fractions, not that anybody starts to measure out all their dog food. Right. But so I've got whiteboards all around my classroom. So pretty much a 360 whiteboard room. And I kind of just throw that scenario at them. And so you'll see kids initially, they just start drawing models. They draw seven boxes and some of them will even break it down in sections of three and they start coloring it in and there's all different things happening. You know, that's maybe a one to two day lesson and we do some practice problems with that and we start to show how when you break down those boxes, that's how you're multiplying and that's why you're actually multiplying by a reciprocal and, you know, all that good stuff. But then on the assessment, it's like little Johnny has a 10 foot board and he's making two third foot cuts. How many cuts is he going to make on the board? And I get kids like raising their hand immediately calling me over like, I don't get this. I don't know. So it sounds like something that I want to tip my hat to you, drawing models. So it sounds like they're utilizing some form of mathematical model, such as, you know, it sounded like with seven boxes, sort of like maybe an area model. And so they're actually really trying to kind of build like a visual piece to this, which is great, and not just sort of rushing to an algorithm, at least early on. And then what about, so between that lesson, so let's say this max rate problem with dividing fractions with the dog food, what might some of the work in between a lesson like that look like and the test down the road? Like, what does that sound like? So like, how do you follow up those types of lessons kind of is what we're getting at here? Right. Like that purposeful practice piece to make sure that students really have grasped what came out in that lesson and we've consolidated it and then sort of what goes on after that. So I pretty much this year, especially have started to make all my lessons through Desmos. You know, there's a few lessons on there where you can have the kids manipulating on the computer with fractions. So it's generally, for me, most of the time, it'll be so kind of that jumping off lesson, maybe some sort of three-act task or problem-based learning. And then it's usually a day or two of some type of Desmos activity. But on those Desmos activities, towards the end, I usually throw in your traditional questions. And so, you know, I can see percentages right then and there of how my students are doing. And I think when we're in class and we're talking about things, their confidence is a little bit higher and the scores look a little bit better. 
So to me, I see those those happening in class. Also do like Quizlet Live quizzes. We do a lot of work on whiteboards. So just practice problems on whiteboards, those types of things. You got definitely a lot going on in there. And I think there's a lot of good stuff, especially on Desmos. I definitely use a lot of Desmos in my classes. And I agree with you on the idea that they have so many great lessons to kind of get that understanding out into the open or get them to practice and make those connections between graphs or say your fractions and the big ideas around those. So I would also be utilizing Desmos to do a lot of things. Kyle and I, we've had many discussions about this because we were in a very similar situation where when we first started using three-act math task type lessons where we would get the kids to talk and get all that out in the open and they get to try solutions and we realized we had that same problem you did. And when it came down to doing our tests or our standardized tests, our scores were worse than they were before initially. And we went back and thought, like, what's going on here? And we realized that we were doing all this great work to get the thinking out into the open, but we were missing a couple things. And one of those things that we were missing was... One, we didn't consolidate the learning explicitly through direct instruction when needed. And we also didn't build in practice time during our units or our lessons that came to like those kind of boring textbook style questions that were really the test questions anyway. So they struggled with the test questions because we didn't practice them. Every day we were doing these great Desmos activities. We were doing these great three-act math activities, like you've just said, but we failed to show them the types of questions that they're going to have to experience or solve. And uh, Kyle and I will always say that you might be really good at solving this one type of problem, but if you can't solve this other type of problem that uses the same skill or same context, are we really that good? One thing that we needed to do was first we needed to consolidate that lesson directly. And sometimes for us, that would take the form of seeing what the students are showing us from around the room. And if it's not hitting the learning goal that we picked out for that day and the skills that we want to bring out that day, that's the time where we step in and we teach those skills. We show them the skills. We talk about the algorithms. We make it formal. And sometimes for me, that looked like a kind of a standard lesson at the end of class instead of at the beginning of class. And then right after that, we definitely built in practice and more practice and more practice. And then later on, we can talk about some structures around practice. Kyle, do you want to add anything to this? Because I think we definitely have a lot we can build on here. Yeah, exactly. You know, the reason why we thought it would be excellent to bring you on the show is because we definitely felt this way very recently or up to very recently, I should say. And what I want to also mention about that consolidation piece is that, you know, there's going to be many days where there's enough students in the room who are making headway towards that new learning goal. So it's great that students have sort of like created student generated algorithms and solutions along the way. And then oftentimes when we do that more direct instruction piece, first of all, we can give kids the voice and we can gather them around and bring them in so that we can do this, what we call the most important part of the lesson and ask students to articulate their solution strategy. So this will help students at all ends of the spectrum, especially if we do sequence from, you know, most accessible, meaning like a solution strategy that is fairly obvious to see on its surface so that everyone can kind of be head nodding going like, yeah, I see what's going on there. And then all the way to getting closer to that 
place we're hoping to get to today, which sometimes a student will have it and maybe they've had exposure to that learning goal in the past and they've sort of brought it out. Or other times, maybe it's just taking a solution strategy and it's sort of extending it. So taking that one student's model that you see and it's like, wow, like this is pretty close to where I want to get to. It makes it so much easier for me to talk less but have some more meaningful things to say, if that makes sense. Like I look back to my typical lessons in the past and it was like me talking most of the time and kids probably zoning out after five to 10 minutes. And now in my consolidation, I might be talking for maybe that 10 minute time slot instead. And that's to kind of make those connections. And then the other piece that I think is really a really low hanging fruit is taking that context and trying to do some extension problems like Dan Meyer would call them like sequels, but not sequels in the sense that you have to go find another picture or a video, but to like ride the context and head towards the word problem. So I might've done a a really cool three act math task, but then now the extension after we've consolidated the learning might be another question with the same context. So it might still be the dog food, but now it's somebody else's dog and it's a different ratio or a different uh, set of fractions that you're going to have to divide. And now you've kind of helped them by, first of all, they already understand the context. And now it's just reading the problem and sort of building from there. And then slowly you can kind of move away. Like I'm almost suggesting scaffolding for that particular learning goal, scaffolding away from the three-act math task. And while sometimes that's not going to be the most exciting thing, what we tend to do is we bring back some of these practice type problems as something near the end of a class or something even to start off a class. So it might just be like a warm up type problem and it might be related to a topic from last week. So it really tries to keep it in the forefront, but also get students in this place where they can actually read a word problem and start building the context in their own mind. Cause that's like a form of abstraction that we're trying to build for our students. We start by showing them a video because it makes it very accessible for everyone. But then we want them to have the skill to be able to read a word problem and build the context in their mind. I picture it just like a child who's learning how to read. You start with picture books and then the next step is pictures with one word on each page. And then, you know, series of books or the next stage of books would be like pictures and a few words. And then eventually you get to this place where there's no picture at all. And that takes a long time. So this might not happen within a day or two days or even a week. If I'm able to kind of mix up my topics a little bit, I can do this over a longer period of time. Does any of that make sense or is there anything might be unclear? Because I feel like we just threw out a ton of ideas, but they were just coming at us pretty hot and heavy there. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Math Moment Makers, Kyle here. And I've got just a quick message specifically for our district-level mathematics decision-makers out there. Do you feel like you're spinning your wheels when making district-level goals for mathematics programming from kindergarten through grade 12? Setting new goals each year only to find little to no real shift in pedagogical practice or educator content knowledge across the district as a whole? Take a moment to book a short call with our team so we can learn more about your specific district and educator learning needs in mathematics so we can assist you in taking the first step of many in the right direction. Visit makemathmoments.com forward slash district to book a web call with our team today.
We have a limited number of spots for districts just like yours, so don't wait. Head to makemathmoments.com forward slash district and grab a spot in our calendar now. No, I think I follow. So I'm breaking down what you guys are saying in two ways. One way I'm hearing you guys say when my students are working out these types of problems to really pay attention to the different methods that are out there and focus on how I can sequence that so that every student in the class can understand it from whatever level they're at or wherever they're at in terms of that particular problem or let that work be a a jumping off point for where our discussion goes. Something that really helped us when we first started doing three-act math problems and opening the doors to students attempting solutions before we showed them. Because one of the big mistakes with three-act math problems we made early on was we would present the, what do you notice? What do you wonder? Our kids would generate those. We get all this curiosity and engagement. And then I would turn and just show the kids how to do the problem. And so then we lost all that great thinking that could come out. And one way that we, I would say, saved time is, I guess it is a time saver, is, is let the kids show us what they know. And it sounds like you're doing that. And, and what helped us was when we first did this, we didn't really know how to tie all those together. And the resource that really helped us was the book, uh, The Five Practices for Orchestrating Productive Mathematical Discussions. Have you heard of this book or read this book? Yes, I have. I'm very familiar. So that's why when you guys were talking about sequencing work, I was thinking of that book and just had that in mind. I guess this is actually kind of number two on my list of struggles and they kind of are starting to overlap is student discussion. So picture you come into my classroom and we're working out a problem, whether it's a three act task or whether it's just a word problem. There's a lot of times where the entire room is covered in whiteboards and there's 10 or 12 different methods up there on how to do this problem. And usually you'll get, you know, one or two that maybe have the algorithm that you're looking for. You might have one or two that have a picture. You might have one or two that are doing repeated addition instead of multiplication. And you might have one or two that are totally off, right? And so as far as my problems with student discussion goes, if I'm like, all right, Kevin, explain what you did on that board. And Kevin starts to explain it. And then I try to have my students respond to him, you know, do you agree with that? Do you disagree with that? Can we poke some holes in that? Can we ask him some questions? After Kevin goes and Sally goes, then I've pretty much lost my kids at that point, if that makes sense. It totally makes sense. Like they're all standing around and one student relates their strategy and they're kind of getting antsy. And then you move on to somebody else and you're all kind of like, let's all go look at so-and-so's board. (laughs) You kind of go over there and they're like, okay, when is this over? And yeah, like uh, that's definitely happened to me. I think I have a couple suggestions here, but uh, what have you tried so far to help mitigate that problem? Yeah, I have a couple things I've tried. So, I mean, the goal of it is to put the ball in the student's hands, right? So I'm trying to select certain students in a certain order on who's going to talk when and explain what. And that's my way of sequencing it. So, I mean, definitely at the very beginning of the year is day one, you have to kind of start building your routines and procedures. I give the kids those sentence starters at the very beginning of the year. I agree because I disagree because, and can you explain, or we use, can you speak with conviction? I'm having trouble hearing you. I have a lot of sixth graders that talk really quiet. You know? Yeah. I have a daughter <laughs> like that. <laughs> uh, so that helps. I have a pink pointer finger that sometimes I'll just randomly hand to a student and say, all right, you're the discussion facilitator. So instead of me being like, all right, who's going to go? Who's, you know, we do that. Or sometimes I just say, hey, you're the teacher now. Or sometimes I will just say like, I pick two methods and say, all right, let's decide who's got a better method going on here. 
So, you know, little things, I don't know that I have anything. I'm looking for more. I love the ideas that you shared. So, you know, you have selected certain students and in a certain order. So obviously putting um, some of the book to the five practices to work for you, which is great. I like this idea of you really trying to empower the students, giving students a bit of a voice in this process. And like what I'm picturing, and I can't say I've done this before because I haven't, you know, I did not have a pink pointer. finger. (laughs) But with that in mind, what I'm picturing is like possibly trying to do a little bit of that and maybe giving that student or a group of students a little bit of freedom to at least start the consolidation for you or allow them to go around the room and select maybe two solutions or two groups that you'd like to share, share out some of their thinking, but then for you to take over after that and have like maybe your one, two, depending on the scenario, like whatever really, really intentional selections ready to go. And then also being very clear with the groups, what you want them to share. And this is something that was for me, a big game changer. It saved a lot of time. It also allowed students to stay more interested in the discussion because it wasn't a student starting from like top to bottom. Like I think students think when we have them share their thinking that they have to start from the very beginning and go all the way to the bottom. And I feel like I did expect that from my students for many years. And after a while, you realize that, wait a second, like what I really want to know from this group is this part right here. Like you take that pointer with the pink finger on the end and you really specifically say, this area right here has got me really curious and I want to know what you were thinking here and then sort of helping them to frame the start and end point for them might help trim up some of that so that you're not losing as many students. This isn't a guarantee that you're not going to lose some, but then when that consolidation is over, it's like you're doing your thinking. You already know what that learning goal is that you had in mind. And that's when it's like, all right, here's what we need to do in order to connect what we just did to the new learning. And you can be very explicit with students about that, that, okay, so, you know, there's so much great thinking here. I want to push our thinking just a little bit further and here's how we're going to do it. And students might come gather around you or however you choose to do that. And then that's where you get that direct instruction time to try to tie those loose ends and then having in mind what's the launch point after you're done doing that consolidation, what's the next thing you want them to do? And that might be that little push down the line to encourage them. So for example, if I want the consolidation to be focused on helping students to try something on a double number line, I might then give them a modification or an extension of that problem. And now I might challenge them to all use that model. So they just had an opportunity to use any model they wanted, any representation, any strategy they wanted. And now we're trying to help them kind of nudge them in a direction to kind of stretch their thinking a little bit. Because we don't want students always doing the same thing. We want them to have multiple representations and different modeling and solutions strategies that they can use. And Kyle, just to jump in here, that's also a good strategy when you're monitoring and you're walking from group to group and you're noticing, because sometimes this happens, and I would say this happens a good chunk of time, especially when you're giving students problems they don't know how to solve. They're trying things. And if you're noticing they are going either down past that they 
probably shouldn't, instead of having individual discussions with all of those groups, you can just pause the class and you can come over to one board and ask that's kind of on the path that you might have that model that you're saying, like, we could go this way. And so you could pause the class there, bring everybody to that one board, ask them that very specific question of like, why did you choose this model? And then you talk about it. And sometimes what I do to keep the class going with the discussion is sometimes I'll ask them that starting question and then I'll say thank you. And then I sometimes alleviate some of their pressure because students in my class, for sure, in high school are super nervous to explain that strategy to the class. They're like, don't pick me, don't pick me, right? They're worried. I usually let them off a hook a little bit because I know that I'll go back to them later and we'll bring it back at a different time. But I'll say, start here, tell us how you got started on this. And then when they tell us that, I kind of pick up the loose end and continue with that model a little bit myself. And then, like you said, Kyle, just we send them all back to the boards and go, now you try it on this model too. And so it could be a great strategy to kind of steer everybody to a particular learning goal you're looking for if you notice that they're doing stuff that could cause them to have mass confusion later on. I definitely kind of make that call on the fly. And that's definitely something that we need to prepare for. Like we got to prepare for that case coming up. And one thing that I want to just clarify too, like I'm picturing you might do that if there's like maybe a misunderstanding or there's some sort of miscommunication. If if students are going down a path, like they're following a strategy and, you know, I'm watching it and maybe it's not making any sense to me, or maybe lots of students are doing things and I'm not quite certain, you know, I really want to push allowing them to do that work, like engage in that productive struggle. So if there's like mass confusion, meaning like students are uncertain of what the question is asking them or something like that, definitely. But at the same time, we want to make sure that they do take risks. So if I do shut down, let's say certain strategies, because I'm like, uh oh, they're not heading anywhere near where I was hoping they'd be heading. I just have to be really cautious because we want to make sure that students do believe that, hey, my teacher is going to allow me to do a little bit of tinkering here. And I don't have to worry about doing it, quote unquote, the right way or the efficient way yet. We want to try to help them find more efficient ways or more efficient strategies, but we want to do that over time and definitely not too early in the process. So um, just wanted to clarify that just for people listening. Thank you, Kyle, for clarifying that. It's definitely not something that you want to step in because I think you can go down the path there yourself by saying, oh, they're not going the way I want it. We better pause and everyone, basically, you now teach them the way to do it. But uh, that's not Yeah, and they go, I'll just wait next time. Yeah, that's not what I'm saying. You know, Mr. Pierce is going to just cut me off anyway and and tell me to do it this other way, you know? So, so it's really, it's hard. Like teaching in general is really hard. And I'd say math is like, it's a complex beast, but like, this is what it's all about for me. This is what makes me love teaching math is that it is so quote unquote, it depends. Like it's like so many things are variable depending on the situation, which is sort of why we like math, right? There's so many interesting things going on and things changing. So these challenges are just, I just get so excited for them because I want to be there tomorrow when you try some of these ideas <laughs> and tinker with things just to see, you know, see what kids do. Sometimes uh, it blows up in our face and then we go back to the drawing board and other times, you know, it's like, Hey, look at that. I, you know, it was right under my nose. So yeah, I think um, what you guys are, I think- what you guys are saying, sorry, go ahead. Hey there, math moment makers. Are you a dedicated listener? Like I'm talking, have you been listening for a couple of months, maybe even a couple of years? 
Well, if you haven't taken a moment to leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform, it would mean so much to us. It'll take you under one minute uh, so that you can help more educators see and experience the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. Uh, Do us this huge solid. Uh, We thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And uh, here is today's episode. Oh, not at all. I was just going to say just that anytime you can get three people together, it doesn't matter who they are. And, you know, if you can find two colleagues in your building or even one colleague in your building to just uh, informally throw these ideas around, it's so interesting how many times I'll be so challenged by something and then I share it with one person and it's like in two seconds, they're like, did you try this? And I'm like, oh, no, I didn't try that at all. (laughs) So I better go do that. I've been filmed before and we'd sit there and watch me teach in PLC. And uh, it was maybe my first year teaching and my colleagues are watching me and that had this cool lesson. I don't even remember what it was, but they just asked me the question, like, do the kids know what your expectations are? Like, did you ever set your expectations? Like, do you want them seated? Do you want, you know, so I was like, oh, I never really did tell them that it is kind of confusing. You don't see that on your own. No, totally. So many things are so obvious to you, right? Yeah, yeah, right. But kind of going back to what you guys were talking about earlier when you were talking about stopping kids when they're they're getting to those points. One example that really kind of resonated with me that when you guys were talking about that was, you know, sixth grade, we do ratios. And the way that I do it is I kind of teach ratios and then we move into unit rate. So the first time we start doing unit rate, you'll always get one student that starts to make a ratio table where they're putting in 20 spots on a table instead of realizing that you can divide. So I'll kind of let those students make their 20 spots and somebody right next to them divided. And I let them see, okay, you know what? There is a faster way to do this instead of stopping them. Well, maybe you shouldn't do that table, right? But you know, if I see some kids that are maybe totally off, that's when I jump in. Yeah, there's always that fine line, right? And you want to give them freedom, but not to a point where, you know, a student at the end of the school year is still tinkering where they were in the first week of school, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. It really, it makes it hard and everything becomes a judgment call. I love Kathy Fosno always says, you know, she challenges students to see if they can do it more clever, if they can find a more clever way to do it. So if a student does a ratio table, it's like, let them do it. All right. Awesome. I wonder if there's a more clever way to get to this same solution. And you could walk away and come back a couple minutes later, see if they've bit. And then if they haven't, then it's challenging them to try something different. But I think the big part is allowing them to, and kind of pushing them, help them see through their original solution or strategy, and then trying to push them to try another. And if we can do that, then that makes the consolidation process so rich. Because if you do have a student who's behind, and I've never met a teacher who's like, no, no, all the kids in my class are at the grade six level. (laughs) So you always have someone in the room that's going to benefit from seeing that ratio table anyway. So it's like a nice hinge, like it's a nice jumping point to be able to bring that up as a solution strategy for students to see that, hey, look, you know, ratios and rates, they're really connected and it gives you another opportunity to even bring that back to the forefront. Like, what is the difference? Like, when are we using ratio reasoning and when are we using rate reasoning? And many of these things I never even thought considered earlier in my career, I would just sort of race through rates. And if it was rates today, that's how we're solving it. And that's all there is to it. And I used to be the teacher that if they didn't solve it with rates on that day, be like, no, uh, you should solve with rates today. (laughs) Even if they were solving with ratios. 
And something I wanted to come back to this assessment piece, because I know like assessment is a beast, especially since not only like assessment in general, where, you know, it's very, very challenging based on just what society believes school should be from an assessment and evaluation perspective, but then also like just the varying approaches from different districts, you know, state standards or provincial standards, like what, depending where you are. And then also within your own schools and departments, sometimes there's different rules and things in place. So that makes things very, very thorny, very hairy. But if I could like zoom out on the school year, one of the big challenges that I hear in my own district and in other districts when we travel around and do workshops is teachers who are stuck between this point of like, well, I'm doing these interesting things like a three-act math task or a rich math task of some shape or form. And then the standardized test at the end is all these word problems. It's like they don't seem to jive. And in my mind, I now picture the intent and the intention of doing the three-act math task, obviously to spark curiosity for sure and to fuel sense-making. But if I'm able to fuel sense-making in my students enough, then students will be able to, by that standardized test, be able to take those word problems and build that, call it like the three-act math task in their mind, if that makes sense. I don't know if that's helpful or not, but for me, that's sort of how I, I sort of see it now is that that standardized test is supposed to be at least near the end of that school year. So like near the end of all those standards that were laid out before me in that grade level. Level. And that would suggest that, you know, we've engaged in so much interesting math and we've had so many opportunities to come back and dive deeper and deeper into these ideas that now students don't need me to show them a video clip in order to understand what's happening in the context, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that does make sense. I guess one question that I have is. So you have your kids at a point where they don't need a video, they don't necessarily need a rich task, they need that practice. What are the types of things you guys do to keep them curious and hooked and excited while you're going through your practice, those types of things? So once we've got that learning out into the open through the task and we've consolidated and we've kind of decided on an efficient method or the learning goal, and now we want to, say, practice, say, the ratios or the unit rates or the fractions. I use lots of different structures to practice to keep that engagement going. Uh, you know, a lot of times we'd be like, okay, now let's open the textbook and just do these questions and sit down and, and more. And I used to do it that way, but obviously, like you're suggesting, is like everything's just going to drop and kids aren't going to get that practice in. And so what I do now is I set up a lot of structures. Like I've got five different structures that I use on a regular basis. Basis. Uh, the one that I go to a lot lately is it's like an appointment clock structure. I don't know if you're familiar with this. Um, you remind me, I think I've seen something like it. Do you schedule times with different students and kind of rotate around? Is yeah, it? that's exactly right. Okay. So it's like everyone gets up, you have an appointment clock, which is really just a circle with some lines at different times of the on around the clock, like nine o'clock, 12 o'clock, just blank lines for and then they go and write each other's names in there. They make appointments with each other. And then what we do after that is, let's say we're factoring expressions. So then after that, everyone gets, what I do anyway, is what everyone will get a expression to factor using any of the techniques and the models that we've, we've learned. And they'll own that factoring question. And so then they'll do that solution on a piece of paper. 
and they uh, usually the the questions on a separate slip of paper and then so I'll call out a nine o'clock appointment and then everyone goes and finds their nine o'clock appointment in the room somewhere or at the boards they meet and then they exchange factoring questions and the nice thing I like about that is is that now they're going to do a new question so a brand new one and the solution holder of that, like the back of the book is their peer, the person that they're sitting across from or standing beside, like they've got the full solution already to compare against. And so if one of them doesn't get it, then they can each help each other to get the right answer together. And then we call out another one. And so calling out different appointments, you know, they're really doing just the practice from what a textbook might look like, but they're up, they're moving, they're self-checking, they're peer evaluating, they're having conversations. And so there's lots of good thinking going on in there. And also, uh, like I said, just good discussions. So they've got that safety net, their partner too. So they know that they have the answer at the end of it. You know, they're not going to be left without knowing. So that's one I use on a regular basis. That's really just like grab some pretty straightforward questions to practice. Another one that I use on a regular basis now is I used to call it two truths and a lie. It's it's like that party game where you'd say two truths about yourself and a lie, and then everyone has to guess which one's the truth and the lie. Well, what I do in my class now is I'll put up an expression or a math problem or a table or an equation, and I'll write three statements. And I won't tell them which one's true or which one's a lie. And it's mixed. So as a class, we'll do one or two together. And they'll have to decide which one's the lie. And lately, I don't call it two truths and a lie. I just call it truths and lies because they could all be true or they could all be a lie or a mix and match. So I took out the two and the one condition. We'll do a couple like that together. And then what I have them do is I give them, again, like the appointment clock, but I give them a math problem or everyone gets a different one. And then they create their own two truths and a lie. And they don't tell anyone what are the truths or the lies. And then the great part is they post it around the room. They post their math problem with their statements. And now you've got this gallery walk, uh, great math questions and great deep thinking math questions, because now you have to verify all three statements for that one math question. And they come up with some great stuff because I'll say, make some easy and make some hard on your peers. And again, they have the solutions on the back of the page. So like the appointment clock, they don't come to you to check the answers. If one answer differs from the answer that a student's getting, they go to the person who created it and they have that conversation with them. So that's another one. You know, I got five and I don't think we can get go into all of them. We- yeah, I just jotted down a couple notes to make sure we put the appointment clock and two truths and a lie, some links in the show notes. So one of the takeaways that I got from listening to those two practice structures, I guess I'll call them, is this idea of kind of making practice something that isn't so long, tedious, boring, and maybe seemingly pointless to students. You can have, you know, and I heard you mention like, so it's not all rich tasks. And I would argue that even the practice there by taking some of these practice problems that I used to do, and I used to just print out the page of 24 of them and fire them off. I could take those same 24 problems and I can make the process more rich. The task might not be like super rich, but I hope that what I'm having them practice has some richness to it. And I'd like to think that a rich task doesn't necessarily mean a three-act math task or anything like that. Uh, We even have a section in our online workshop about taking textbook problems and making them more curious and more rich by just making simple changes to how we deliver them or how we introduce them or how we structure our practice, which John's done a great job of highlighting. So, you know, these are things to keep in mind. And then the last 
piece I want to throw in there is the idea that we know that research, cognitive science tells us that spaced practice is much better than mass practice, which is really just this idea that if we were to take the same amount of practice questions and do them one after the other for the rest of the class versus taking those same number and maybe spreading them out over a series of days, and it might even be over a week or whatever it might be, you're actually going to get more benefit in the long run from that and actually longer retention. So we'll put a link to some spiraling math class resources in the show notes as well. But at this point, what we're wondering, Sam, is maybe getting closer to wrap up, we're wondering, is there any takeaway that sort of sticks out in your mind from this conversation? Maybe something that you might put into action in your class or reflect more about, you know, as you head into 2019 and the rest of this school year? Yeah, definitely. My mind is racing right now. I think for me, my comfort zone, and it goes back to the very beginning, I've always thought about math. So my comfort zone is the content. You can give me pretty much any topic, sixth, seventh, or eighth grade, and I can be like, okay, we could make a problem out of it doing this, this, and this. But then as far as classroom routines and making the practice engaging, that's where I struggle. So I think sometimes I don't step out of that comfort zone. So I think some of these strategies like appointment clock or two truths and a lie, those are all great things that I can start running with, right? So good stuff. Sam, we want to thank you for joining us here on the podcast. And we don't want to take up too much of your time, but we have one more question. We had a great conversation. We talked about so many great things here. We were just wondering, what's one you know big takeaway from this conversation that you got out of our talk tonight? I think this talk has really helped me maybe take a step back and slow down and say, you know what, not every single day has to be this crazy video or three-act task or whatever it is, and how you can take those cool lessons and those great lessons and use them more tactfully, start to take away some of the pieces of those lessons so that students have a better understanding of building their procedural fluency. But procedural fluency doesn't have to be boring book problems. It can still be engaging and the students can still take away as much, if not more, from those types of lessons than maybe a three-act task per se. Awesome. That sounds like some good insights there for you. And definitely it it reminds me of some of the things that I got to keep doing in my class too and keep thinking about. So thanks for saying those things. If this is okay with you, we're hoping to bring you back in, you know, six to nine months. We want to hear about the things you're trying and the things you've changed, successes you've had. Would you be willing to come back on and chat with us again? Yeah, absolutely. That would be awesome. Beautiful. Well, Sam, we've learned a ton as we always do. Every conversation, it's great. Our minds are racing. I'm glad to hear that yours is too. Your brain's on fire as much as ours is. We hope that people listening have gained as much from this conversation that we have. So thank you so much for taking the time to join us tonight on the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. And we hope to stay in touch with you before we hear from you six to nine months from now, uh, definitely through social media and email. But in the meantime, we hope you have an amazing remainder of the school year and we'll be in touch soon. Thank you guys so much. It's been awesome. I appreciate all the help. Well, there you have it. Sam Brotherton from St. Louis. We know you're listening to this, Sam, and we want to say one more time, thanks. We appreciate you and we look forward to having you back on the show in the future to see how you're progressing on your journey. This was another Math Mentoring Moment episode with many more to come where we will have a conversation with a member of the Making Math Moments That Matter community like you who's working through a challenge and together we will bring 
brainstorm ideas and next steps to help overcome it. If you want to join us on the podcast for an upcoming Math Mentoring Moment episode where you can share a big math class struggle, apply over at makemathmoments.com forward slash mentor. Again, that's makemathmoments.com forward slash mentor. In order to ensure you don't miss out on new episodes as they come out each week, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform or simply searching or use these quick links. For iTunes, go to makemathmoments.com forward slash iTunes. For Google Play, go to makemathmoments.com forward slash play. For Spotify, go to makemathmoments.com forward slash Spotify. And quick links will work for most other popular podcasting platforms as well. Also, if you're liking what you're hearing, please share the podcast with a colleague and help us reach a wider audience by leaving us a review on iTunes. It really does help the show make it to new teachers' ears and new listeners. So take a moment right now and hit the write a review button and leave us that five-star review. Every single one makes our day. Show notes and links to resources from this episode can be found at makemathmoments.com forward slash episode 13. Again, that's makemathmoments.com forward slash episode 13. You can also find Make Math Moments on all social media platforms and seek out our free private Facebook group, Math Moment Makers K through 12. Well, until next time, I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. High fives for us. And high fives for you. If you are a district leader of mathematics, a math coach, a math curriculum coordinator, a superintendent and principal, getting teacher buy-in for effective math teaching practice is top of mind. And plans only go so far. You can make you know detailed plans and, and carefully designed goals with clear objectives and key results that are measurable. But that can feel like it all falls flat if we can't engage our teachers in the work. Working with teachers who do not want to change their teaching practices is one of the most frustrating and challenging parts of our job. How do I help teachers engage in effective teaching practices when they keep pushing us away? If you can't reach the tipping point in mass adoption of effective mathematics teaching strategies, then it's it's likely we won't see student improvement in mathematics. We have a free training uh, an accompanying workbook for leaders of mathematics like you. Uh, the, math, the Make Math Moments team, myself, John, and Kyle walk you through our four-stage process uh, we use with district partners to create clear, measurable, sustainable PD action plans, but more specifically on how to also get teacher buy-in so that it drives student engagement. So step one, register for this free training, get your planning workbook, um, and then watch the training. Schedule some time on your calendar so you can watch it and go through the workbook. After completing that workbook, you're going to have a clear, measurable vision, action plan for mathematics to get more teacher buy-in, but also be able to hit your goals for the 2024-2025 school year. So head on over to makemathmoments.com forward slash four stages to start this free training.